Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of A Whole Lot of Grey. And on today's episode, we're going to be touching upon what I believe is a super relevant global and ongoing phenomenon, which I think everybody, not just my listeners, but everybody in general, should be at least a bit aware of. And we're going to be touching on the disruption of traditional institutions, specifically three of them. The first, educational institutions, the second, financial institutions, and the third, media institutions. So these three sets of institutions are being challenged by more viable alternatives than ever, thanks to the rise of globalization, ever-changing demographics, and an access to technology. Now, this unprecedented rise in technological access is obviously the most important catalyst for this phenomenon which is that three of our planet's vital institutions, like I said, education, finance, and the media, are being challenged to keep up with what is becoming an increasingly changing and transient global landscape. Now, obviously, before we jump into these three sets of institutions and how they're being disrupted and being challenged by viable alternatives, there's obviously a whole host of other institutions that govern society, right? Like the judiciary and law enforcement, which I'm not going to touch upon today because for the purpose of this episode, I'm only going to be touching upon these three, again, to reiterate education, finance, and the media. And pay attention, you're definitely going to notice a theme with all three sets of institutions. So here we go, jumping straight into the first one, educational institutions. Now, according to finder.com, they estimate that more than 40% of Americans are dissatisfied with their college education slash do not believe that their college degree has adequately prepared them for either the real world or the job market. And the United Way organization estimates that one in every 10 college students are dropping out of university in the European Union. According to Isabel Ray Lafabre, uh, my apologies if I'm getting that last name wrong, uh, who's a journalist at Le Monde, which is one of the most respected French media entities. According to her, Italy and France in particular are experiencing super high dropout rates in the EU among public universities, with nearly half of all first-year students in French and Italian universities opting to drop out and not to carry on to the second year of uni. And keeping in mind that, you know, obviously we can spend the next five, 10 minutes going over data from around the world, but this is at universities in America and Europe, right? So the richest and most prosperous regions on our planet where nearly 40 to 50% of students are experiencing some sort of dis dissatisfaction with their college education. Either they think it's not relevant to the real world um, or they're dropping out and not even pursuing it onto the second year. Which brings us to MOOCs. Now, what exactly are MOOCs? So MOOCs are, it's an abbreviation which stands for Massive Open Online Courses. Now, dictionary.com has a simple definition which defines it as a course of study made available over the internet to a very large number of people. Now, MOOCs are serving as alternatives to traditional university experiences. And some examples are Coursera, edX, Khan Academy. You can Google the rest, but these are three that off the top of my head are super successful MOOC platforms, right? 
So there are multiple reasons why they're replacing traditional university setups. You can learn remotely, you can do it at your own pace, and obviously it's far cheaper than actually going to college and obtaining a degree. Now, Class Central, which is the largest digital guide for all sorts of MOOCs, has estimated that in the past decade alone, there have been nearly 250 million learners, almost 100, new, 100 million new learners, excuse me, during the start of the COVID pandemic. Pandemic, uh, given that most universities went online anyway, right? Uh, and today you have roughly a thousand universities themselves offering MOOCs. You have Stanford, Harvard, the biggest brands in the education business have also joined the MOOC train and also offer courses in, you know, whatever field, computer science, economics, biology, on platforms like Coursera and edX, right? And if we look at college education, again, specifically in the United States, which you can say is a limited sample, but again, it's the richest country in the world. So if we look at US college education, the one constant, right, despite the shift to MOOCs and digital learning over the past decade, has been a price increase in college tuition, right? Now, if we look at, this is from the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, as reliable an organization or data source as any, when we look at, you know, the price of, uh, college tuition in America. So as per them, college education in America has experienced an annual inflation rate on average of almost 10% per year over the past four decades, while the average inflation rate in the US economy has roughly been 3% every year. So if you look at the consumer price indices from, again, the US Labor Department, Prices in the US economy have gone up cumulatively by 250% in the past four decades, while college tuition fees have gone up 1500%. Now, what does all this mean in English, right? Here's what it means in simple layperson terms, right? Which means if you had $20,000 in 1980, which fun fact was the median cost of a college degree back then, it, that $20,000 accounting for inflation would be worth around $70,000 today in 2022. But the median cost of a college degree, assuming you don't get any scholarship or financial aid in America, today is roughly $300,000, right? So we see that what used to cost $20,000 in 1980 and what's worth $70,000 today it's still not enough to get you a college degree, even accounting for inflation. That number is roughly $300,000, which is essentially four to five X what the price of college was four decades ago, right? So despite all of this, what are the obvious advantages of college over MOOCs? There's one obvious advantage, and I'll tell you what that is right now. It's credibility, okay? Meaning that at the end of the day, even while the knowledge gained and the networks developed at a MOOC might roughly be the same, all you get is a professional certificate saying that, hey, listen, I've completed an online course in biology from Coursera or edX or what have you, right? And professional certificates in today's day and age simply don't have the credibility as formalized college degrees, right? Uh, especially because job markets back in the day actually required formalized college degrees for you to enter the job market and for you to get recruited. But today it's a skill-based economy. So the you know requirement, you, you're going to see around the world that fewer and fewer organizations actually require you to have a formalized college degree in order to enter the job market. And I'm not talking about licensed professions like medicine or the law or the military. Leave those because those are you know high-skilled licensed professions where you're always going to need some sort of professional license. I'm saying in general today, it's no longer a mandate to enter the job market. You must have a formalized college degree, right? And 
The thing is 250 million learners in MOOCs on the past decade alone. Like keep that statistic in mind. That's not a you know trivial number of users. That's a lot of people. And the rise in credibility of MOOCs will turn that 250 million into even 500 million, which will further disrupt these physical college spaces. And keep in mind that the credibility of these institutions is key, okay? So as long as the physical college experience will give you a formalized college degree, they can do have the one-up over MOOCs in terms of credibility, right? But we're seeing these disruptions happen because look, like I said, quarter of a billion people, 250 million people have signed up for MOOCs in the past decade and even top universities. You can go online right now to fact check me on platforms such as edX and Coursera, the leading MOOC platforms in the world. You have the Harvards and Stanfords also offering courses, right? So we're seeing some sort of disruption wherein they're forced to play ball to compete with other MOOCs and other online courses being offered on these MOOC platforms, right? Now, the second institution which has been disrupted are financial institutions. Now, back in the day, if you wanted to make some money buying and selling, you would have to buy foreign exchange or buy and sell shares on the stock market, etc. right? Now, today, owing to a rise in digital currencies or cryptocurrencies, you now have alternatives to traditional government-backed currencies or buying and selling shares on the stock market, right? In fact, the whole white paper, which is the whole origin story of Bitcoin, actually talks about how freedom from government regulation, control, supply, and monopoly is a huge appeal of decentralized finance and digital currencies in general, right? Now, don't take my word for it. According to Dale Gilham, who's a stock market expert with over 30 years of experience in the field, 85 to 95 percent of people around the globe again not a trivial percentage of people most people report losing money on the stock market okay so this phenomenon coupled with the fact that super large banking transactions take time you got to fill out forms and applications to send you know wires across borders which is super time consuming and these traditional banking networks don't even guarantee you the encryption and anonymity like digital currencies or cryptocurrencies do because they leverage blockchain technology. Now, how blockchain technology is leveraged to guarantee encryption and anonymity is a different episode which I'll be covering very, very soon. But for now, just take it as it is that these are the facts, right? Now, yet the banking system in the stock market and government-backed currencies function because of credibility, despite the fact that, you know, 85 to 95% of people report losing money on the stock market and banking transactions take time and you got to fill out forms and applications and they don't even guarantee you encryption and anonymity, excuse me. Despite all of this, they still function and are the norm because of credibility, right? Now, the US dollar has credibility because it's backed by the Federal Reserve, which is the Central Bank of America, and all other central banks and governments play ball with this and they back their own currencies, right? Now, not only have you know the United States and other governments around the world started playing ball with digital currencies and businesses across the globe are starting to accept them as legal tender, Again, because of credibility, more and more people are backing digital currencies, right? Now we'll notice this will further disrupt traditional institutions, but not only is this happening just in the US and Europe and other governments around the world, which have a certain degree of, shall we say, economic prosperity, even a country like India, which is home to you know, the largest concentration of poor people in the world, which used to have a fairly hostile stance on digital currencies, formally recognized 
digital currencies and the government's latest budget this calendar year. They've addressed everything from disclosing returns to what are eligible tax deductions on crypto and digital currency holdings, right? Now, not only have governments, like I said, in the case of India, the US, whatever, not only have global governments begun passing such legislation that allows for the recognition of digital and cryptocurrencies and the thriving of such currencies, many governments are actually in talks about launching their own gov coins and gov coins are essentially digital currencies and cryptocurrencies backed by these governments to compete with existing digital currencies such as bitcoin ethereum whatever again like i said you'll notice this phenomenon is similar to how harvard and stanford and top universities have launched their own MOOCs to compete with coursera edx etc same way governments themselves in addition to recognizing digital currencies are launching their own gov coins to actually compete with these two. So we see that in both cases, right? Having assigning credibility to MOOCs, assigning credibility to digital currencies, which are nothing but democratized and decentralized institutions for education and finance, are getting are gaining their own traction, are gaining their own credibility, which, like I said, is leading to these institutional disruptions, which is forcing the traditional mainstream established institutions to recognize this phenomenon and play ball, right? And the third phenomenon where we're noticing this is the media institutions. So back in the day, in order to have an opinion on a social or a political issue or sports or anything in the public sphere, right? You'd have to write an op-ed, make a submission to, let's say, the New York Times or BBC or any, you know, credible newspaper, get in touch with maybe an anchor on a CNN or a Fox News or an NBC, or get in touch with any of these massive production houses and hope you can get your 15 minutes of fame, a time slot, or a blog piece published, right? Those were your best bets again back in the day. But today, again, thanks to social media and again, a democratization in media institutions, can we say, I can write a blog on medium.com or I can start a podcast which we're doing right now, or a YouTube channel, or go on Twitter, whatever, right? I can go on all these platforms, publish my own opinion in any capacity. I can write a piece, I can record a podcast, I can make a video, I can tweet anything, right? So the credibility is shifting again, which has even forced traditional media houses to adopt these new measures. And here's some very, very interesting data on the media institution disruption from Nielsen, which is you know, perhaps the most credible organization in the world regarding data-driven insights, analytics, etc. right? So the Joe Rogan podcast, which is widely heralded as the most popular podcast in the world, averages 11 million listens per episode. All right, let that sink in, 11 million listens per episode. While the primetime shows of CNN plus Fox News plus MSNBC collectively average around 5 million listens per episode, which means that the Joe Rogan experience per episode has averaged more than twice the collective numbers of the primetime shows of MSNBC, Fox, and CNN, which are three of the largest you know, traditional media organizations in the United States and among the largest in the world, right? So the beauty of this democratization shows that in relatively free markets and societies, right? People actually hold the power to decide what institutions, what schools of thought are credible and which ones are not, right? That's why you see Harvard and the best universities offering MOOCs. That's why you see governments launching their own digital currencies and passing legislation to recognize crypto and digital alternatives. 
And that's why you see the CNNs and the Fox News of the world getting on Spotify, getting on Apple, getting on Instagram to drop new age content such as podcasts, YouTube videos, reels, etc. Right. And today, right, CNN has maybe more credibility than your random run of the mill Twitter user or Instagram user because again it's CNN but if that random run of the mill Twitter or Instagram user starts to generate more views more traction suddenly the credibility shifts and the power dynamic shifts completely and they're just as credible as an op-ed coming out of CNN right and I think this phenomenon that we're noticing especially in these three institutions is that the creation curation and dissemination of knowledge is being democratized and decentralized, which while otherwise it was monopolized by a very few sets of, you know, credentialed branded players, such as the governments, like the 5% of people winning in the stock market, big media houses such as CNN, NBC, universities like Harvard, Stanford, so on and so forth. The power essentially and the credibility essentially lay with these kinds of organizations. And now it's getting democratized where a random Joe off the street can come in and get a piece of the pie in education, in finance, or in media, even me, right? Like a whole lot of gray. Today, I'm able to do this because of this phenomenon uh, in, you know, democratizing and decentralizing media institutions, right? So just to recap, again, uh, education institutions currently charge you like a quarter of a million dollars to obtain a college degree. Today, I can go on Coursera or Khan Academy for pretty much $40, $50 and get at least similar levels of knowledge as, you know, an educational institution would provide me with. Uh, look again at finance, right? Today, I can go on Coinbase and start buying and selling Bitcoin, Ethereum and backing these digital currencies as opposed to, again, buying and selling shares on the stock market where only 5 to 10 percent of people have historically made any money, right? And similarly, media you needed to be well connected to either an established mainstream media house or mainstream newspaper or media personality to get your voice out there and to get your opinion heard. And now I can make a tweet or a Facebook status or an Instagram story or do what I'm currently doing, which is on Spotify and 30 other platforms and on YouTube and highlight this phenomenon, right? Also, shameless plug, subscribe to the channel on YouTube and Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening to this, if you're not already to further accentuate this phenomenon of democratizing media, right? And I think my final thought is when we look at this global phenomenon, which has impacted three sets of massive institutions, right? Education, finance, and the media. I think democracy is, look, it's far from perfect, obviously, but democratizing and decentralizing institutions truly does allow people to decide what constitutes legitimate, what constitutes credible, and what is not, right? As opposed to, again, concentrating the power in the hands of only a few players. So it is a super exciting phenomenon that I believe is only going to accelerate as time goes on, especially with an increased access to technology and increased awareness about these phenomenons. And here at A Whole Lot of Grey, we cannot see we cannot wait to see where it goes. Uh, forgive me. We just simply cannot because it's super exciting. And I think this democratization is only net positive because it kind of levels the playing field and allows more users, more individuals who may not have otherwise had the resources or the connections to, you know, get out there and get into three 
pretty massive areas, right? Education, finance, and the media, um, thanks to technology and thanks to globalization and all these wonderful things. So um, that's all for today's episode. Let us know what you think. If you think this global phenomenon is real, you think it's fake, what are your thoughts on it? How else do you think these institutions are going to get disrupted? What other institutions do you think are next to be disrupted with an increase in technological access and globalization, right? What's next on the democratization and decentralization train? Uh, my Instagram, at Anish202BLR, is in the description, so please reach out if you have any thoughts on this episode or if you would like me to cover any other topics of interest. Until then, uh, stay tuned. We have a whole host of super exciting content coming your way, and I honestly can't wait to see um, how you guys respond and what more we come up with next. Cheers, guys. Have a, good, have a blessed, blessed, blessed week.